I won't go into a lot of detail about the, the background of the book of Romans because that will actually come out as we work our way through the book. Uh, but I need to say that um, Romans really stands at the head of all of the New Testament letters um, in God's providence. Um, whoever made the decision that Paul's letters would be in the order that they are, uh, they just kind of arbitrarily decided they put his longest one first and his shortest one at the end and his longest to shortest. Uh, but in God's goodness, uh, Romans is Paul's longest letter and so it stands there at the head. And in Romans, uh, we see the most comprehensive uh, and full summary of the Gospel and the implications of the Gospel for someone who believes it and receives it. Um, it also sits at the tail of the four Gospels and Acts. Um, as if to say, uh, if you read the Gospels and the life of Jesus and then you read the Acts and what Jesus continued to do by his Holy Spirit through his people and you come to the end of that and you might say, well what does all this now mean for me? Romans answers that question. It, it's, it's actually the, an interpretive tool in a, in a sense of what the Gospels and Acts are actually all about. So I trust that as we work our way through this book, uh, right through till the middle of November, uh, we'll be richly blessed as we hear God speak to us uh, about his Gospel uh, and about how it transforms our lives. So it is a book about the Gospel and the first, the first half or the first section of chapter 1 really is Paul's introduction to his letter uh, where he makes it very clear that uh, what he is on about is the Gospel. We'll see it in our passage this morning and we'll see it in our passage next week. Uh, so the big question for us is, well what then is the Gospel? Before we ask that question, there's actually another question though we need to ask. That actually is, what is a gospel? Uh, the word gospel uh, was a word that was in use in the culture of the day, in the ancient world. It was um, not just Christians who spoke about a gospel. And a gospel uh, essentially is a, uh, an announcement of news. Uh, not, but not just news, but sensational news. A gospel is a sensational announcement that means the world is never going to be the same again in light of what's been announced. A gospel isn't, wasn't always good news. It may be news that the Assyrians are coming and we are going to be defeated. That's sensational news, isn't it? That means your world is never going to be the same again because it's going to be turned upside down. Uh, 17 years ago, I don't know if you remember where you were when you heard the news of the planes crashing into the Twin Towers. Uh, that was sensational news that has meant that the world has not been the same since. So in a way, that was a, a gospel, something that turns your life upside down. But then the first Christians 
would speak about not just a gospel but the gospel. Uh, and since, since then, uh, throughout the history of the world, when you hear the word gospel, it's, a, it's always now associated with the Christian message, the Christian uh, good news about Jesus Christ because what the Christians were saying by calling that the gospel and Paul calls it here the gospel of God is that this is sensational news that actually trumps every other news that you may have heard. This overrides everything. This is a, an announcement of news that is going to change the world in a way that no other news ever has. It's going to turn the whole world upside down and it's going to transform the world and transform people and their lives. So the Gospel is obviously very important for us to know. If someone said to you, what is the Gospel? It's good to think through, well, how would I answer that? How would I describe, how would I explain or define what the Gospel is as a Christian? And Paul, uh, Paul goes straight into talking about uh, the nature of this gospel, the content of this gospel that he as an apostle has been sent to proclaim. First thing he says about it is that this gospel in verse 2 was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, you might like to have your Bible open uh, to Romans chapter 1 so you can kind of follow along as I go through it. Um, but this is, this is a recurring theme in the Old Testament, where the, in the New Testament, where the Gospel is mentioned, that it's something that has been promised beforehand. It's not just a last minute thought of God. He's just come up with it at the last minute, but uh, he's been planning this uh, since the beginning of time and creation. And he's promised it. He's been telling his people in advance of what is going to happen. Sorry if at the back it's a bit small to read. There's the passage that Leong uh, read out earlier from Isaiah 52 verse 7. See how he says that uh, these, these, there are these messengers and we, we consider their feet to be beautiful as they walk, come across the mountains because they have good news to bring us. Um, what is the good news? that Isaiah says these messages bring? What is the gospel that these messengers bring to God's people? Well, it's there at the ver- in the verse 7, they say to Zion, your God reigns. That was the most common uh, usage of the word gospel in the ancient world. Uh, if a king was away fighting a battle, maybe uh, defending his land from his enemies, and he was victorious in the battle uh, and they, before they even began to pack up and head back, he would send a messenger back to his home city to make the announcement, the king is victorious, your king reigns and he's returning to the city. So get ready, get ready to celebrate when he comes back as the victorious reigning king. This is the good news that these messengers were bringing to God's people, not just your king, David, or whoever it was, but your God as triumph. He reigns and 
uh, see in verse 8, uh, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So your king reigns, he's victorious, and he's coming back. He's coming to visit you. Why should you be celebrating this? Well, verse 9, we're told uh, he has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Not only that, verse 10, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So the fact that Israel heard this good news, your God reigns, he's coming to you to be with you, he's redeemed you, but that is a gospel, good news, that actually has implications for the whole world. All the ends of the earth will see what God has done um, as king. So the gospel at its very heart is about the reign of God. Your God reigns. Three words to sum up the, the heart of the gospel message. Let's see what Jesus had to say about the gospel. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See how Jesus' words uh, echo Isaiah's words. What is Jesus' gospel? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, which is just another way of saying, your God reigns. The kingdom of God has, has come, has arrived in him. What would people be thinking as they heard Jesus say that? Well, they would know Isaiah's passage where the gospel was promised beforehand and they'll be thinking, well, that means the Lord has returned to Zion as he promised. It means the Lord will redeem us, his people, as he promised. It means the Lord's salvation will extend beyond us in Zion to the ends of the earth. Jesus' gospel was a sensational announcement that turned Israel upside down because it was saying everything God has promised is now here, it's now happening. What does Jesus say is the required response to his gospel? Well, the gospel, he said, was the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, how should you react to that? Repent, turn away from sin, uh, say, recognise that you're wrong and God is right, recognise you're a sinner and God is holy, uh, turn back to him and believe the gospel. Receive what I'm saying and accept it. Um, have faith. Repentance and faith are the, uh, the res- response that God calls for when we hear this gospel announcement that he is the king. So be ready. Be ready to receive God as your king, as your saviour, as your redeemer. Now, of course, that message of the gospel could be good news or it could be bad news, depending on how you respond, can't it? To hear your God reigns and if your response is, I don't want God to reign, I don't want to be part of his kingdom or submit to his loving reign, then the implications of that is judgment. It's actually bad news to hear that your God reigns unless 
you're willing to turn to him in repentance and faith. So our gospel was promised beforehand in the scriptures and it was that message from Isaiah uh, fulfilled in Jesus that God reigns, God is the kingdom, the, the kingdom of God has arrived. But Paul then unpacks that a bit more. He says that this gospel uh, is concerning his son, his son Jesus. Jesus is the king who has established the kingdom. It's through Jesus that we can say our God reigns. And he unpacks that. What does it mean? Uh, How do we understand Jesus to be the king who has established God's kingdom? He says he was descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus' descent from King David is is actually more important than we may uh, realise. In our modern Western democracy, uh, we kind of think of kingship as uh, a bit outdated, a bit irrelevant. But uh, this Jesus being descended from David is actually mentioned a number of times in reference to the Gospel. For Paul and the Apostles, Jesus being descended from David was actually very important for him being the Messiah or the King. To say that Jesus is descended from David is to say he is the fulfilment of the covenant, the promise that God made with David back in 2 Samuel 7, which you can look up in your own time. Uh, But the promise was that, David, one of your sons, one of your descendants, will sit on the throne and he will establish the throne forever. And that was the promise that ever since David, Israel were waiting to see fulfilled this righteous king who would be like David but greater than David, uh, who unlike David would not have moral failures and unlike David would not eventually die and go to the grave, but he would be a king who would establish a kingdom of peace and justice and harmony and fairness and love and compassion um, forever. That was the great hope of the people of Israel. So to say Jesus is descended from David is very important because it says God has kept his promise, his promise to David. However, being a descendant of David according to the flesh isn't actually enough for us to say Jesus is the Messiah, the King. David would have had thousands of descendants living around Judea at the time of Jesus. So which one? What qualifies Jesus specifically to be that son of David, that king. We might automatically say, well, he's God. He was born of the Virgin Mary and so because he's divine, he must be the Messiah. That might be our thinking. But that isn't the reason that Paul gives for, uh, for confirming Jesus' kingship. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus... Jesus' sonship is mentioned twice in this passage and each time it's mentioned it means something slightly different. So in verse, uh, verse 2, um, sorry, verse 3 where it says the Gospel is concerning his son, that's a reference to his divinity. Jesus is God the son, the son of the father, the son of God. 
Uh, he is the Son, the Word who was made flesh. Hence that reference to uh, descended from David according to the flesh. In other words, he's God, but he came as a human being, became flesh, and as flesh he was born as a descendant of David. But the reason he was made flesh was so that he might accomplish salvation as a human being. Jesus' divinity never overrode his humanity. Everything he did, all his miracles, everything he accomplished was as a spirit-filled man. 100% God still, but with his glory, his divinity veiled. Because Everything he did, he did on our behalf, as our representative, as our substitute. He had to do everything 100% fully as a man. So Paul is saying that he, we must see that Jesus has been made king and established God's kingdom on the basis of his humanity, not on the basis of his divinity. So he says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power. Or a better translation of that would be appointed to be the powerful Son of God. Now where the word Son is used here in this context, it's actually a primarily, it's a reference to his kingship, not his divinity. The Old Testament kings were called sons of God. They were even called sometimes gods. By virtue of the fact that they were the representative of God's authority on earth. They were sons of God. They were to reflect God in his character and in his authority. Um, Obviously for them that title was only symbolic. They weren't literally sons of God. They weren't divine. But it, it spoke of the authority of God that was coming to the people through this king, this human king. Now in Jesus we see the one who is literally the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. But nevertheless the reference here refers more to his authority as the King, as the Messiah, than it does to his own divine nature as the Son. Jesus' kingship, which began with his birth as a descendant of David, physically, was ratified and confirmed and completed when God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, placed his seal of approval on him by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand and giving him all authority over heaven and earth. And from that position of authority, Jesus now gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, you see why the resurrection of Jesus is actually right at the heart of the Gospel. Uh, Every sermon in the book of Acts mentions the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus is risen from the dead, that's God's way of saying he is the Messiah beyond the shadow of a doubt. He may be a descendant of David, but that doesn't prove his kingship, but the fact that I've raised him from the dead means he is the king. He has established uh, the kingdom Because he is the Messiah, we can say, our God reigns. Isaiah's words have come true. 
Uh, God truly reigns because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And because our God reigns, we can say with confidence he has redeemed his people because he has authority, he has power. There's no reason for us to doubt the ability of our God who reigns to redeem us and reconcile us to himself. Because Jesus' qualification as king is that he's raised from the dead, uh, we can know that the one who stands as our king and as our judge is also the one who laid down his life for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so he stands at his father's right hand ready to welcome us in, not to condemn us, not to expel us, but to bring us in. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, we know that God has redeemed his people through him. Because of his position of authority, he's also authorised then to send out his representatives, his apostles, those messengers with beautiful feet who bring this good news to say, God reigns, God saves, God redeems, God forgives, God brings people into his kingdom. Paul says we call people to the obedience that comes from faith, which is another way of saying what Jesus said. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, Repentance and faith. Ultimately, the gospel is Jesus. Uh, When we talk about the gospel, we can easily just think of it as a set of ideas or concepts, a list of points that you have to cover if you're sharing the gospel with someone. But the gospel is not primarily a set of ideas. It's not a set of concepts that we have to mentally assent to, although that, that is part of it. The gospel is Jesus himself. The gospel, as Paul says, is concerning his son, God's son. So that means the gospel primarily is about relationship. And that comes out in the three ways that Paul speaks about the Roman Christians. Verse 6 he says uh, he's calling people to obedience through faith, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you know, nowhere outside the Gospels is anyone called to be a follower of Jesus. Many people today use that term and maybe we might use it because maybe the word Christian carries a lot of baggage and people assume a lot of wrong things when we use that term Um, and we think, well, say I'm a follower of Jesus is a bit more understandable and that's I'm not saying that it's bad or harmful to talk about being followers of Jesus. But when Jesus said to people, follow me, he just meant it in a a purely simple, um, come and walk with me and I'll be your rabbi and I'll teach you. And people literally did that. They left what they had, they got up and they walked and they literally followed him. You know, we can follow someone from a distance. We can follow someone without even knowing them. I follow people on Facebook. I follow blogs of people that I've never met. They don't even know who I am or that I exist. I don't have a relationship with them, but I can still follow them and learn from them and be taught by them. But there's 
there's no relationship there. To belong to Jesus Christ is another thing altogether from following Jesus. To belong to him means I can't keep my distance. I'm united with him. I'm part of him. I'm with him. I I share in him everything that he is and everything he has in his relationship with the Father is mine because I belong to him. I belong to him and his Father. I belong to the family uh, of which he is a part. That's why everything Jesus did as King and Messiah had to be as a human being. He came and belonged to us so that we might belong to him. Now it might sound a bit strange if someone says, oh, are you religious? And you say, yes, I am one who belongs to Jesus Christ. It might sound a bit pompous even. Uh, and in the end it's not about the words we use but how we understand what it means to be a Christian. <coughs> am I just following Jesus at a distance or do I belong to him? Am I a part of him? The second thing Paul says, which very clearly is relational, is that the Romans are loved by God. In this action of the Father calling us to belong to his Son, Jesus Christ, in the Gospel, we have the absolute assurance that we are loved by him. Not because he needs us. And calling us in is the greatest act of love because as we'll see later in this book, we were his enemies. How loving is it for someone to say to the enemy, I welcome you in to belong to me. And this is so important for us to know, the love of God towards us in Jesus because in a couple of weeks we'll be digging into some passages in Romans that speak very strongly about the judgement of God and about the sinfulness of humanity and without the assurance of the Father's love for us and without, the, uh, without knowing that all that he does flows out of the reality of his love for us and his purpose to bring us to himself in Jesus, then we won't be able to listen or accept his pronouncements of judgement upon us and our sin. God tells us our sin and about judgement because he loves us. He doesn't love us because of Jesus. Jesus didn't make him love us. It's because he loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Are you able to say of yourself, I am loved by God? Does that define your identity when you think about yourself? knowing that he loves you, not because there's anything in you that's worthy or deserving of that love, but because he is love. And in grace and mercy he has set his love upon you in Jesus. Thirdly, he says that they are called to be saints, to be his holy people. We might think of holiness in very unrelational terms. Holiness is moral purity. If I want to be holy I need to do the right thing. I need to avoid sin and do good things and somehow that might make me 
holy. But literally to be holy means you are set apart for God and to God and by God. Holiness is about how we relate to God, not just about me on my own trying to be pure and holy, but how do I relate to this God who is holy love? To be called his saints, his holy people means uh, you belong to him. He has set you apart to be his own and so we are called to know the one to whom we belong, the one who has set his love upon us. The Gospel, as we'll see next week, is the power of God to save, not just by changing our thinking or by changing our behaviour, but by changing our identity from stranger to son, from rebel to citizen, from one who was estranged from God to one who has been brought near to God. All of that is the outworking of this gospel, this good news that our God reigns and we see his reign in Jesus who is Lord. And the rest of Romans is the outworking of this, the fleshing out of what this gospel means for us. What what does it mean to someone who hears it, who comes to faith in Jesus and who desires to live a life that is true to their calling? And what are the implications of this gospel for this world? For anyone who hears and is called to be a part of what God is doing to, uh, to set his love upon people and to call them to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can say of ourselves because of Jesus that we belong, that we are loved and that we are set apart to be your holy people. What a privilege, what a wonder, what a joy it is to know that that is who we are in Jesus and because of this great, sensational, world-changing news of the Gospel. Father, open our hearts over the coming weeks and months uh, to, to see the wonder of all that you have done in this Gospel uh, for us. And may we be captivated and propelled forward into the purpose that you have for us as, as people and as your church, uh, as the people of God. We pray this in the name of your Son, uh, to whom we belong. Amen.